Welcome to Our Savior and Friend, the Book of Luke, by John M. Fowler, edited for audio by the Ambassador Group. Exploration 2, Baptism and the Temptations. Luke provides a list of great historical dignitaries to help show that his account of Jesus and John is as real and as historical as these powerful men. But there's another important reason to mention these mighty men of power and influence. It is to contrast them with John the Baptist, God's chosen messenger, who is to prepare the way for the most significant event in all human history so far, the coming of Jesus, the world's Redeemer. How interesting that God chose not one of the world's great men to herald the Messiah, but one of the lowlier ones instead. Scholars put all these historical personalities together and give us a date close to A.D. 27 or 28 for the start of the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus. It is within this historical time frame of these Roman Empire luminaries that Jesus was baptized and received the benediction of heaven that he is God's beloved son. Luke chapter 3 verse 22 gives all the details. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape, like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Luke establishes this fact right at the outset, even before he presents to his readers the orderly account of the mission and ministry of Jesus Christ. John appears in his unique and crucial role in salvation history. Whatever else one could say about John's preaching, he was not sugarcoating his words in order to please the crowd. Let's listen to Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Notice how Luke prefaces his words with several historical markers. Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Ituria, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius, the Tetrarch of Abilene, Annas, and Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came unto all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers! Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, 
we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answereth and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none, and he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptized, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than what is appointed you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. John the Baptist's words are filled with important truths, not just for those who were within earshot, but for all of us. Can you imagine what he would say to you? Did you hear these points? Jettison the way that you live according to this world's paradigm. It's the wrong way to live. Repent. Change the way you live. Live a genuine life as a Christian. Let your Christianity be authentic. Don't huddle around behind your heritage. Share and be content. Repentance is not just a theoretical notion. It is a way of life. The word comes from the Greek metanoia, which means a change of mind. And this leads to a new life. To baptize means to dip or immerse fully in water. Immersion has a profound meaning. Even before the time of John, the Jews had attached meaning to baptism by immersion. It was a common practice when Gentile proselytes chose to join the Jewish faith. In inviting Jews to be baptized, John the Baptist was setting forth a new principle. Baptism is an occasion to publicly renounce one's old sinful ways and to prepare oneself for the coming of the Messiah. John the Baptist introduced a symbolic act of renunciation of sin and consecration to a new way of life as citizens of the Messianic kingdom, which was about to be inaugurated. John was quick to add that he was baptizing only with water, but the one who was to follow him will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In other words, a crucial point is made. Baptism, as an act of immersion in the water, is only an outer symbol of an inward change, a change that will eventually be sealed by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let's contemplate Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Listen and compare Paul's description to your life experience. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, 
that henceforth we should not serve sin. What spiritual lessons does the Apostle Paul draw out of the act of baptism? Did you notice how he compared the act of immersion and getting out of the water with dying to sin and living for righteousness? Have you experienced the reality of this new life in Christ? What areas of your life still remain submerged? That is to say, what areas of your life are still being surrendered to God? In Luke 2, verses 41 through 50, we read the famous story of Joseph and Mary losing sight of Jesus in Jerusalem. Luke tells us, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to be in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among the kinsfolk and the acquaintances. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. What's especially fascinating is Jesus' response to Mary when she rebukes him in verse 48. Jesus' answer is an affirmation of his divine self-consciousness, that he is the Son of God. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my Father's business? As verse 50 says, Joseph and Mary didn't grasp the implications of what Jesus had said to them. In all fairness, how could they? After all, even the disciples, after three years with Jesus, were still not totally certain of, of who he was and what he was to do. For example, after his resurrection, Jesus was talking to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. One of them, in referring to Jesus, had said that Jesus was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. Luke 24 Verse 19, New King James Version. Jesus, of course, was much more than a prophet. Even they still didn't grasp who he was and what he had come to do. Let's listen to three different reports of Jesus' baptism. Reports by Matthew, John, and Luke. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17 says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. 
And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34 tells us, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Luke chapter 3 verse 21 says, Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened. What do these verses say is the significance of Jesus' baptism? At his baptism, heaven attested that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus sought baptism not because he needed it as part of a post-repentance process, but to set an example for others. Matthew chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 say, But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. Three important factors stand out concerning the baptism of Jesus. 1. The Baptist's Proclamation Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1, verse 29, New King James Version. 2. The Holy Spirit's anointing him for his mission ahead. And 3. The heavenly proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God, in whom the Father is well pleased. Think about it. The spotless, sinless Son of God, the creator of the cosmos, was baptized by a mere human being, all part of the plan of salvation. How should this amazing condescension on his part help you to be willing to humble yourself whenever you truly submit to Jesus? bread alone. Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit, being tempted for forty days by the devil. Luke 4, 
verses 1 and 2, New King James Version. Born for a God-ordained mission, commissioned to the task at his baptism, equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the Christ, retreated into the wilderness to contemplate the task ahead. The temptation in the wilderness was a significant battle between Christ and Satan and the great controversy, which has raged ever since Lucifer's rebellion in heaven. In the wilderness, when the Savior was weak from 40 days of fasting, when the journey ahead looked bleak and weary, Satan took personal command in his attack against Jesus. In her classic book, The Desire of Ages, Ellen G. White on page 116 describes the intensity of Satan's attack on Jesus. Satan saw that he must either conquer or be conquered. The issues of the conflict involved too much to be entrusted to his confederate angels. He must personally conduct the warfare. Satan said to Christ, If you are the Son of God, command that this stone to become bread. Luke chapter 4, verse 3, New King James Version. What is Satan trying to do in this account that reflects what he attempted to do in heaven? Bread is not the central issue here. Yes, the 40-day fasting in the wilderness must have made the Savior hungry, and Satan used that circumstance as bait. But Satan knew that Jesus is the creator of the universe. To him who created the universe out of nothing, making bread out of stone was not an issue. The crucial point in the temptation is found in its preface. If you are the Son of God. Only 40 days before, the voice from heaven attested that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. And now should Jesus doubt that heavenly assurance? Doubting God's word is the first step in yielding to temptation. In heaven, Satan challenged the authority of Jesus. He does so here as well even if in a much more subtle manner than you tried in heaven. How can you learn not to succumb to Satan's attempts to get you to doubt God's promises? chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. And the devil, taking him up onto a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power I will give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I will give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Why would Satan want Jesus to worship him? What is the crucial issue at stake here? Worship. Worship is the sole prerogative of God. Only he has the exclusive right, the exclusive privilege to be worshipped 
It is the one factor that forever separates the creature from the Creator. In fact, one of the issues in Lucifer's rebellion against God in heaven is that of worship. The summary of Lucifer's ambition was well summarized by Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Lucifer wanted to ascend to heaven, to exalt his throne above the stars of heaven, to be like the Most High. It was an attempt to usurp the authority that belongs only to the Creator and never to any creature, no matter how exalted. In this context, we can better understand what is happening in this temptation. When Jesus was about to set out on his mission to redeem the world back to God's ownership and authority, Satan took him to the top of a mountain, provided a panoramic view of all the kingdoms, and offered them to him for a simple act. If you will worship before me, all will be yours. Luke chapter 4, verse 7, New King James Version. Satan was trying to divert Christ's perspective from his divine priority and to entice him with pomp and glory for no greater price than just a bow. Once again, he was trying to get the authority and worship that he failed to get in heaven. Notice how Christ dismissed the tempter with utter contempt. Get behind me, Satan! Verse 8, New King James Version. Worship and the service that goes with it belong to the Creator God alone. Here again, the word of the Lord comes to his help. Did not inspiration say through Moses, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4, 5, and 13. New King James Version. Absolutely resolving to follow God in faith and obedience is the ultimate answer to Satan's lies and tricks. No doubt you face temptations to compromise your faith, even in small ways. Your job, your passing of a university examination, your promotion demands a compromise in regard to Sabbath. Your visa to a better country depends on a name change that hides your faith. At what point do you make a deal and compromise your commitment to God? Friend, for you, when is the price right to give in to Satan? Christ the Victor. Luke and Matthew reverse the order of the second and third temptations. The reason is not clear, but that need not detain us. The crucial point is the ultimate victory of Jesus over Satan, proclaimed by both Gospels. The significant factor that emerges from study of the temptations is that Jesus Christ is a real person, tempted as we are, but without sin, as affirmed in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 4, verse 15. 
For we have not a high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. With victory in each of the temptations, with his triumph over Satan, with the word of God in his mouth, and connected with heaven's powerhouse through prayer, Jesus emerges to proclaim the kingdom of God and to inaugurate the messianic age. Read Luke chapter 4, verses 9 through 13, and Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. In the first two temptations, Jesus used the scripture to overcome Satan's enticements. Now, in the third, Satan does the same and quotes the scripture to test whether Jesus really takes the word of God seriously. What is happening here? And how does Jesus respond? Two Bible references describe the details. Luke chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. And he brought him to Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus, answering, said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptations, he departed from him for a season. And Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, if thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, the most sacred place in Jewish history the city of Zion, the temple where God dwells among his people, becomes the avenue for Satan's confrontation with Jesus. If you are the Son of God is once again the preface. Watch what Satan says. If God is indeed your father, and if your mission is indeed at his bidding, throw yourself down from the pinnacle and check it out once for all. Surely, if all that is true, God will not let you get hurt. He quotes scripture. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. Luke chapter 4, verse 10, New King James Version. Satan knows the scripture, but misinterprets it. His tactic is to lead Jesus to put God to the test. God has indeed promised the protection of his angels, but only within the context of doing his will, such as in the case of Daniel and his companions. Jesus answers Satan decisively again by using scripture, declaring that it is not for us to put God to the test. Verse 12. Our duty is to place ourselves in God's will and let him do the rest. Note four major biblical teachings on temptation. One, no one is free from temptations. Two, when God allows temptations to come to us, he also provides grace to resist, and strength to overcome. 3. Temptations do not come the same way every time. And 4. 
no one is tempted beyond his or her strength to bear. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 promises, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Let's continue exploring. If Joseph and Mary had stayed their minds upon God by meditation and prayer, they would have realized the sacredness of their trust and would not have lost sight of Jesus. By one day's neglect, they lost the Savior, but it cost them three days of anxious search to find Him. So with us, by idle talk, evil speaking, or neglect of prayer, we may in one day lose a Savior's presence, and it may take many days of sorrowful search to find Him and regain the peace that we have lost. Personal Life Application Words by Ellen G. White in her book, The Desire of Ages, page 83. Here are a few questions for you to think about. Temptation in itself is not a sin. In the biblical sense, temptation has the potential to affirm the possibility of holiness. To be tempted is one thing, to fall into sin is another. At the same time, what is our responsibility about doing all that we can even to avoid temptation? Philosophers and theologians often talk about what they call a meta-narrative, a grand overarching story or theme in which other stories occur. To put it another way, a meta-narrative is the background, the context, in which other stories and events unfold. Do you see the great controversy as the meta-narrative or background for what has been happening, not only here on earth, but in heaven as well? What are some of the most powerful Bible texts that you know that promise you victory over the temptations that come your way? Why, though, even with these Bible promises, is it still so easy to fall? Doubting God's Word is the first step in yielding to temptation. Why would that be so? One last question, a moment of vulnerable honesty between you and God. In your life, in what ways can idolatry in the 21st century be much more subtle than bowing down and worshiping something other than the Lord. AmbassadorGroup.org
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.